Thank you for listening to this message from Waynesboro Free Methodist Church. Our mission is to multiply faithful followers of Jesus Christ. We hope this message helps you along your journey. Good morning, church family. How are we? If you could get your Bibles out, Genesis chapter 16 is where I would love for you to join me. Uh, Genesis chapter 16, that's the first book of the Bible, so just turn to page one if you don't know where that is. Um, As you're turning there, again, uh, Luke introduced the idea that we're still in this series called When God Doesn't Make Sense. And the first sermon, we took a look at the idea that every time that we're in this place of confusion and we feel the pain of it, we run somewhere. And the question is, where do we run to? And and Psalm 73 shows us that the best place where we can run is not away from the Lord, but to the Lord, that we spend time in the Lord's presence and we get on the wrestling mat before him with our confusion and our doubts. And we learn that basically it's not necessarily that we're expecting an explanation for everything that we saw go wrong. We're just expecting a new perspective that the Lord might provide for us. And so last week we talked about when when things seem unfair, this idea that, that there's something not right, there's something wrong about this. And, 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 and what did we need? What fresh perspective did we need? It was Isaiah 55, this idea that, that God's ways are light years above our own, right? We're way down here on the ground and, and, and he's up there. And when we're thinking and struggling with the idea that things don't make sense, that, that God has been unfair, we've actually changed places, that we've put our own ideas and thoughts light years above his, that he's down on the ground and we're across the universe with our thoughts and ways, and, and we just need humility in that space. So today, as Luke mentioned it, we're, we're in this, when God seems inattentive, when God seems inattentive. Now, I'll tell you this, a cultural understanding of prosperity, of success, has become more incre- increasingly measurable, right? These last decade or so. Uh, you, anytime you, you, you hear from a, a popular speaker or author or somebody who's well uh, celebrated, like a celebrity, right? Or social media influencers, their success and their popularity are often measured in what kind of metric? What, what typically gets measure, measures their success? It's actually their followers, right? How many subscribers they have whether that's on social media or you, like YouTube or Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, whatever it is, it's how many subscribers they have, how many people are following them. How do I know? Well, pay attention to interviews. Pay attention to how guest speakers get introduced and, 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 and their influence, right? They, they get introduced by how many followers or subscribers they have on their social media platforms, Right? If you don't believe me, I, I, one example, I, I, I was listening to a modern day philosopher and, and he was getting introduced into his interview and the, inter, and, the, and the interviewee was interviewing him and they started off introducing him saying, hey, so he's got 1.75 million Twitter followers. As if that's supposed to be a sign of success, right? I probably have 1.75 million hairs on my head. Does that mean I'm successful? I probably, I'm losing some by the way. That doesn't make me successful, right? But, but that's how they measured success, that influence, right? So when we talk about it in its most basic sense, when we have a following or when we have subscribers, right? We're talking about at its basic sense, people who are paying attention. People who are paying attention, like who want to pay attention to this person. So we measure fame, we measure success in our culture, in our society, based on how many people are paying attention to a person or to a project, or to a a program, or or to an organization? How many people are paying attention? 
Now, this is, this is where we become family, because I'm going to confess something to you, and, and, and I, I, I will say this, um, and I want, I'm wondering if you'll reciprocate. Am I the only one who, when I post something on social media, goes back and looks to see how many likes or follows or, or reactions it got just to see if they're actually paying attention? Am I the only one? It sounds like it. Okay. Now, I'll tell you this, that's becoming less and less attractive to my heart. It's not doing as much as it once did. But I'll admit, does, I mean, and I think we could all agree, it, it feels nice when people pay attention to you, right? When, when people put aside their own thoughts and ways and are like, hey, I'd like to, to see what you're up to. When people ask questions about your life, man, that feels, that feels good, doesn't it? Like they actually care. It's people paying attention. Now, let's, let's flip the table for a second. What about when there's injustice? When something has gone terribly wrong and it needs to be made right, how do we usually go about setting it right? What do we usually first do? Right? What, what do we do? I mean, when we're in suffering, when we're in pain, don't we want others to pay attention? When we're, we're, we're struggling with something, we want at least somebody to, to be looking in on that, Right? To know that we're not the only ones? I mean, so let's say there was some sort of uh, mob fighting out there, uh, out in the field for some reason. They just got together and decided they fight, right? What's, the, what's our culture do? Where's my phone? All right, I'm going to record this because I want people to pay attention to what's going on right there, right? It's actually what that ultimately is. They're trying to bring attention to the wrong. So, I mean, don't, don't we as people... Want other people to see the injustice that we're suffering? Because something might actually be done about it because we're helpless, right? We need somebody else to come in and intervene in our behalf. I mean, what, what could feel worse? What could feel worse when, when, when you're suffering injustice and nobody is paying attention to you? What could feel worse than that? When no one is paying attention when a boss at work takes advantage of you because you just happen to have a good work ethic. I mean, what if nobody's paying attention when a spouse makes verbal threats to harm you or has been physically harming you for a long time and nobody is aware? Or what about when, when a child is just kidnapped in broad daylight off the street and nobody sees it? What could feel worse than that? What could be worse than that? You know, I can actually think of something. I can think of something that would be worse is if God didn't see it. If God wasn't aware. If somehow it slipped his mind. That would be worse. What if God's not paying attention? What if he's the one who's inattentive right now? And guys, I'll, I'll admit this as well. I, I, I mean, I can, I can tell you that there have been times in my own life, and I'm, I'm, I'm I'm willing to, to, to agree that there's possi a possibility that some would agree with this as well and, and feel the same way. There have been times in my own life where it seems like just God wasn't even aware of what was going on in my own life, in my struggles, in my thoughts, that he just wasn't paying attention. And if, if you're in that same boat with me, it's not like we're sub-Christian because, guys, there were people all throughout Scripture who felt the same way. They're, they're, this is not a unique struggle to our generation. This is something that has been throughout time. So if you take a look at uh, chapter uh, 13 of Psalm, right? Of the Psalms. How long, Lord? How long will you forget me forever? 
How long will you hide your face from me? In other words, how long are you not going to be paying attention to my struggle and my doubt and my fears and my problems? And we cry out in agony like this. We cry out for God to calm the storm and it still rages and everything from the heavenlies is silent. What do we do? Well, I'll tell you, instead of having a biblical theology of suffering, usually the first thing that we do is we question God's omniscience. And what I mean by omniscience is his all-knowingness, the fact that he knows all things. So we say things like, if, if God was watching right now, if he was paying attention, he wouldn't be letting me go through this. Or we say things like, hey, God's not answering my prayers. I guess I'm, I'm just not on his radar anymore. Or, 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 or there's so much injustice happening in the world right now. God, are, are, you, are, you, are you watching? Guys, I, I say all of this not to make light of them. I say all of this because I'm, I'm wondering how very real these scenarios are how personal they may be to you. Guys, these are very real pains and I've walked with people through them and I've walked with the Lord in my own struggles in them. And one of the things that we learned in the first week, guys, is it's okay to not be okay. It's okay to have these sorts of doubts and questions. It's okay, but don't stay there. You don't have to stay there. So where do we run? To what perspective do we need to run to When God seems inattentive, where do we need to go? And I'll tell you this, there's a story about a slave woman named Hagar in the Old Testament that I think will help us out very much with this. So you should be in Genesis 16. Let me put some context to where we're at. We're in the story about a guy named Abram or Abraham, you know, that father who had many sons and many sons had father Abraham, right? This is the father of Isaac, the father of Jacob, who is Israel, right? He's the father of the faith, basically. And he's married to a lady named Sarai, who would later be, on, be named Sarah, right? Sarah struggled with infertility. She couldn't have a baby. And in the chapters preceding our text, God, at several points, promises Abram that his very own son was going to be made into this great nation with descendants as many as the stars in the heavens, And Abram, even at one point in chapter 15, is complaining to the Lord, hey, you keep promising this, it's not happening, I'm still childless. And God gently just reaffirms his promise to Abram, saying, hey, your very own son will be your heir. And that's where we pick up in chapter 16. Let's take a look at verse 1. We're going to read this in sections, okay? So when I say stop, stop. Verse 1. Abram's wife, Sarah, had not borne any children for him, hence she's still infertile, but she owned an Egyptian slave named Hagar. Sarai said to Abram, since the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, go to my slave. Perhaps through her, I can build a family. And Abram agreed to what Sarah said. So Abram's wife took Sarai. So Abram's wife Sarai took Hagar, her Egyptian slave, and gave her to her husband, Abram, as a wife for her. This happened after Abram had lived in the land of Canaan ten years. He slept with Hagar, and she became pregnant. So pause there for a second. So here we're introduced to Hagar. Right? She's a foreign slave. She's a personal servant to Sarai. Most likely she was part of the gift given to Abram while he was in Egypt. 
In other words, Hagar was most likely forced to leave her own home, her own land, her own family and friends, her culture, her religion, all to tend to the needs of a rich man's wife. You know, it was, it was customary thing for, for a slave to take on the religion of their master. And so, so Hagar had kind of ta- heard probably Abram and Sarai talk about this Yahweh guy, right? This Yahweh God. And, but she didn't really know him personally, per se. And Sarai, in deep struggle with her infertility and in a lack of faith, suggests to her husband that he take Hagar her slave, as a wife to bear her children. Can we just all say, like, that, that's messed up? Right? Guys, this was a detestable act called slave-wife substitution. And it's something that the Bible does not in any way celebrate. You got to remember, just because something happens in the Bible doesn't make it right. <laughs> Right? There are things that are, that, that are morally upstanding, that are commended, and there are things that are not. And just because they happen in Scripture doesn't make them right, okay? Because this was detestable. It's this ancient custom where women would offer their own personal slaves to their husbands, which would allow the wife to claim a resulting child as her own. I mean, this way, a barren wife could actually provide descendants for her husband, now, 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 not only was that Sarai's struggle, but you would think that Abram, the father of the faith, would get things right and be like, no, I'm trusting in God's promises. But nope, he just slips up to. And Abram concedes to the wishes of his wife and takes his wife's slave, Hagar, as a substitute wife. And sure enough, she gets pregnant. So just... Can we just put ourselves in in Hagar's sandals for a second? Away from home, foreign land, slave to a rich woman, forced into marriage, forced to make babies with your master's husband, and her baby will be taken away from her and claimed by her master, Sarai. Guys, I I don't know if you are there yet, but Hagar is an intense suffering. She is experiencing atrocity after atrocity, injustice after injustice. And just when you think things couldn't get any worse, they actually do get worse. Look, look at verse 4, the second part. When Hagar saw that she was pregnant, her mistress became contemptible to her. Then Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for my suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and when she saw that she was pregnant, I became contemptible to her. May the Lord judge between me and you. Abram replied to Sarai, Here, your slave is in your hands. Do whatever you want with her. All right, pause there. Whew! You angry yet? Hagar, all right, I'll just admit, Hagar does what sinners do. She rubs it in. She's like, hey, I got pregnant. You couldn't get it pregnant. Sarah's not putting up with that. Not only, not only does Sarai shift the blame of her suffering contempt onto Abram, even though it was her idea to begin with, 
Even though it was her idea that the fact that they're in this place right now, not only is that what happens, but Abram totally punts his responsibility as a husband and as a now father. He refuses to rise to Hagar's defense. He still calls Hagar, who he married, his wife's slave. And then she says she can do with Hagar whatever she wants, his wife. Guys, there is so much wrong going on here. And we see the height of it all at the end of verse 6. It says this, Then Sarai mistreated her so much that she ran away from her. Guys, this pregnant slave gets so abused, probably physically abused, by her master that she just takes off. She runs away because that's the only safe place, right? She's being harshly used and abused in a radically wicked way. And is anyone seeing her right now? Is anyone paying attention to this injustice? She's away from her home. No family or friends to rise up and defend her. No one else sees. No one else sees her as a human being made in the image of God. Just a slave to be abused and tossed out. No one else sees her intrinsic value and worth as a human being. Who's paying attention? Who's paying attention to this slave girl far from home with a precious life in her womb? Who sees her? The God of Abraham sees her. The God of the man who is totally messing up sees Hagar. God is paying attention. Check this out. Verse 7. The angel of the Lord found Hagar by a spring in the wilderness, the spring on the way to shore, which by the way, is about a 14 day walk. Talk about running away. When I ran away, it was down the street and then I missed mom and dad and I came back. She ran 14 days away. Verse eight, the Lord said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She replied, I'm I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, go back to your mistress and submit to her authority. The angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your offspring and they will be too many to count. The angel of the Lord said to her, you have conceived and you will have a son. You will name him Ishmael for the Lord has heard your cry of affliction. This man will be like a wild donkey. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand will be against him. He will settle near all his relatives. Pause there. God goes after Hagar because he sees her, because she carries a descendant of Abram, whom God had promised his descendants would be as numerous as the stars. And even when Abram and even when Sarai wouldn't keep their faith and hold on to God's promises, no, God is faithful. And he holds on to his promises to make Hagar's son into a great nation, so large that it can't even be counted. And he he tells Hagar to name the boy what? Ishmael, which is a a compound name. Do you know what that means? It means 
God hears. God hears. Guys, what's one key element of paying attention to someone? Listening, right? If you're paying attention right now, you're hearing me, right? Hagar's son was to be named a lifelong reminder that God heard Hagar's cry of affliction. That God heard her weeping from the pain of her injustice. And just when she thought nobody else cared about her, nobody was paying attention to her, and all eyes were on Abram and Sarai, just when she thought it was the end of it all, God interrupts her pain with a promise. Because he had been paying attention to her. He had been watching her. This is an incredible promise. And how do you respond to such things? Well, look at verse 13. So Hagar named the Lord, not her son. She's not talking about her son right now. She's talking about the Lord. She named the Lord, what? You are Elchroi. You are Elchroi. For she said, in this place, have I actually seen the one who sees me? That is why the well is called Be'er Lahairoi, which is between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar gave birth to Abram's son, and Abram named his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. Guys, this is, I think, the only time in Scripture when someone gives a name to God, and it's a slave girl from Egypt, not even a Jew. God's different names are meant to describe the different facets of his character in all of its variety. And she names God Elroy, which means God who sees. God who sees. If you personalize it, it's God who sees me. So we just heard Ishmael means God hears. So we know that God hears. And now we find out that God sees. Aren't those like the two most critical elements of paying attention? <laughs> right? Are you seeing and are you hearing me? Isn't that what it means to be attentive? That's what Bier Lahairoi, that well, it means the well of the living one who sees me. The well of the living God who sees me. In other words, God hears me and God sees me. Remember when you were growing up in grade school and the teacher was like, hey, 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 eyes and ears on me. Eyes and ears on me. Why? Give me your attention. God is saying right now, hey, my ears and my eyes are on you. I'm paying attention. God is shouting, I'm attentive to you right now. I'm paying attention. Friends, you know, we can work so hard to get people to pay attention to us, can't we? We can do things, even things that are kind of unhealthy for us to get people to pay attention to us. And when I'm talking about, I, I mean, it can be as lighthearted as you're at a restaurant and a girl sees a guy across the way and wants to get his attention. Or it can be as heavy as somebody just isolated in their own room and, and, and lonely as all get out and wanting people to pay attention. So, so we do things to try to get people to pay attention to us, right? So for the girl getting the guy, like a, like a wink, right? Is that still a thing? You wink at somebody, try to... I'm spazzing. That's not a. I, I won her with much more than that. My wife, by the way. Or, 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 or for the, the individual who's just locked away in the room and they feel like nobody cares, they use social media and they put up posts crying out for help just to get somebody to pay attention. Guys, sometimes 
we can treat God the same way. Right? When we think that God isn't paying attention to us, we start to do things to try to get it back. So we, so we clean up our acts. We, we try to be better. We try not to express our own doubts and struggles. We, we, we cut off sinful habits and we, we pray a whole lot more and we memorize half of the, the, the book of Revelation and, and all this stuff, thinking that that's actually what's going to get God to pay attention to us again. I'll tell you what, that, that, that actually sounds a lot more like the 450 prophets of Baal working to try to get his attention out in the wilderness where they're dancing, they're shouting, they're singing, they're, they're spending all their day calling out to this God, Baal, to try to get him to respond, doing all these works. And, and Elijah's sit, sitting back there, hey, maybe you need to go a little louder. Right? Maybe he's sleeping. <laughs> he's not paying attention to you right now. Just start doing all this stuff, right? And when it's Elijah's turn, Elijah, who was the last prophet of God in his day, and he's all alone and he's hated by the world. All he does is simply walk up and he prays, God, I know you hear me. Answer me so that the people would know you, God. And fire from heaven falls and crashes into that altar and consumes everything. Apparently, it's Elijah's God who's paying attention to him. And Elijah didn't have to do anything to earn it. Brothers and sisters, We need to abandon this mindset that we have to earn people's attention. Just like we have to earn God's. We're backwards. We have to abandon the mindset that when we look at the world and we want people to look in on us, that we have to do the same things for them. We do God like, like we don't have to earn God's attention. We don't have to, to, to send up fireworks to try to say, hey, I used that big theological word in my prayer. Are you listening to me now? We don't, we don't have to work with God and operate with God in that manner. If, if, if we think that way, then we're actually not worshiping the God of the Bible. We're worshiping a God like every other religion. A religion of manipulation and good works. We're actually using good works for manipulation. Because that's not the God of the Bible. That's not our Lord and Savior Christ, God, uh, as our, our God is omniscient and he's gracious. Grace means we don't earn it. He favorably, undeservedly gives it to us. We don't earn his attention. In Christ, we already have it. So I, I think that the perspective that you and I need when, when we feel like God isn't even paying attention to us right now, because if he was, he'd probably hear our prayers. If he was, then we wouldn't be letting us go through this. If we feel like God isn't paying attention, what do we need to know and hear? What do we need to, to, to have invade that lie and light up the darkness in our souls? Honestly, it's just simply this. God's eyes and ears are always on you. Can we say that together? One, two, three. God's eyes and ears are always on you. Guys, God sees those who go unnoticed and overlooked in the world. Guys, God sees people without prestige, without power, without position, right? He, he sees the men and women without the titles or the wealth or earthly possessions. 
I mean, that's true from all the way in the Old Testament, all the way into the New Testament, guys. In God's eyes, no one is too ordinary to go unseen. He's El Roy. He's the God who sees me. He's the God who sees you. So from the heartache of Leah, right, in the Old Testament, whose wife just totally despised her, to the the Jewish midwives, Shipra and Pua, who defied the most powerful man in the world, a Pharaoh whose name, uh, did you notice, didn't get recorded in the Bible, but two midwives from, 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 from Israel did? Or what about the man paralyzed for 38 years whom Jesus saw amidst the crowd and he goes and heals him instantly? What about the woman who scandalizes the Pharisees with an alabaster box at the feet of Jesus? The one about whom Jesus asked Simon the Pharisee, hey, do you see this woman? Guys, the scripture testify over and over again about our God who takes notice. God sees what the world overlooks. God sees the humble, the meek, the common. And he sees you. He sees your heartache today. Because you have his full attention when you're in your room curled up on the floor, drowning in sorrow. He's paying attention to you right there in your car as you bang the steering wheel in anger. He's paying full attention to you when you're in your office and you just drop your head into your hands in despair and exhaustion. Or when you're in your neighborhood pacing your streets back and forth in anxiety, fearful of tomorrow. He sees you when the bank account is running dry. He sees you when you're hiding in fear from someone who's seeking to do you harm. He also sees you when you stand up for your faith and your convictions in a world that's doing everything it can to cancel them. As he sees Pastor Lee Jun Kai, who has been sentenced to five years in a Chinese prison cell simply because he wouldn't remove the cross off the top of his church. Five years in prison, God sees him. What about the Christians in North Korea who are suffering torture, physical assaults, sexual violence, executions, imprisonments, violent interrogations, and even forced abortions simply because they believe in Jesus? God sees them. God is paying full attention to them. They've not wandered off into a space where God doesn't know about them. Brothers and sisters, I love you. In our American dream Christianity, we have bought into the lie that the worst thing that you and I can ever experience is suffering. Anything that would strip us away of what makes us comfortable we think that that's, what the, that's the enemy. I skipped over it because I wanted to make the main point, but I think this follows. Did you notice what happened in verse 9? God asked Hagar to go back. 
and submit again as a slave to her abusive mistress and her failure of a husband. How how can you reconcile that? Unless we have a right theology of suffering. God commanded her to go back and imagine if she had not encountered him. Imagine if she didn't know him as Roy. No, she could go back into that harsh environment with the promise in tow and the character of God in full view that God sees her, that God is paying full attention to her. And if God is paying attention to her, then what have we to fear? So we, we wrongly believe that suffering and death are the worst things that we can ever experience in life. No. There's only one thing that I can think that is worse than all of that combined. You know what that is? God actually taking his eyes and ears off of you. Think of that. Can you feel anything worse? Is, is there in, in actuality anything worse than for our, our all-powerful, all-knowing, supremely loving and gracious God to just drop you off of his radar and stop paying attention to you anymore? Is there anything worse than that? No. In fact, it could be argued that that's the epitome of hell. That God no longer concerns himself with you. I mean, what, what, what could be worse than being forsaken by God? Our suffering, our pain in this life pales into comparison of that. To be forsaken by God. And don't you see that this is the best news of the gospel? You see, in, in, in Proverbs chapter 15, it says, The Lord is far from the wicked. In fact, there's another verse that says, He sets his face against the wicked, He distances himself from the wicked. In fact, He actively opposes them. Don't you see that the good news of the gospel is that Jesus endured being forsaken by God so that we don't have to? I mean, isn't, isn't that the epitome of what happened on the cross? Isn't, isn't that literally what Jesus is horrifyingly agonizing over when he cries out, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which is literally, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which literally means, why have you abandoned me? Why have you turned your face from me? He's literally crying out, God, you've not, you stopped paying attention to me. What kind of pain could be more severe than that? The father stopped paying attention to his own son, which I think is the worst pain ever imaginable. Jesus endured it so that we'd never have to experience losing the attention of our father. In fact, Jesus endured it 
so we could have our Father's attention for the rest of eternity. So when I say God's eyes and God's ears are always on you, it's all because of Jesus. Not because you deserve it, but because Christ won it. God's attention for us is secured by Christ and his blood. God's eyes and God's ears are on you. And there's nothing that you can do or nothing that can happen to you that would ever change that. Not because of you, but because of Jesus. God sees you because of his son. That's at the heart of the gospel. That Jesus experienced what it meant and what it felt like to have the father turn his face away so that you and I could experience what it feels like to have the Father turn his face towards and pay attention to us and to see us. So if you're in this space, in this place where it just really feels like God's not paying attention to you, or you're getting ready to head into something that's really difficult and hard, and, and you're wondering, is God, is God going to be watching over me as we go? Absolutely he is. Because you believe in Jesus, he is paying attention to you now and always. And you will not lack any good thing that your Father in heaven knows you need. Can you rest in that today? We hope this message helps you multiply faithful followers of Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please visit waynesboroughfm.com.